Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 17 through 20. Continuing in our series in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. Paul says this. Says he brought, speaking of Jesus, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, you're citizens. Along with all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you know what we're made of today. You know that we're just human, we're just human frames made out of dust, and yet you love us. I myself am a, am a silly person. It's silly, Lord, for me to be up here trying to explain the eternal qualities and proportions of what your word declares. And so, Lord, we recognize that we need more than a lecture today. We need the power of the word of God to be unleashed by the spirit of the living God in this place. Lord, we believe that what Paul said is true, that your word is God-breathed and inspired for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training up, that the men and women of God who were inadequate would be made adequate for every good work. So I just pray over my brothers and sisters today and myself included, that those of us in this room who have have given up on other people and have been given up on, Lord, would come to the foot of the cross and find help and mercy and grace in time of need. That as we open up your word and we look at how you transformed a small group of people, we would look with hope that perhaps you can transform us as well. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon uh, this morning is called An Overwhelming Embrace. The, The point of the sermon is that if we can get this, we, and most of us know this from bad experience, but we live in a world of exclusion and alienation among people where things like tribes and factions and cliques are what define us, that dominate the landscape. And yet we also believe as the people of God that somehow God is creating in that landscape an upheaval. He does it by embracing people that were lost, by an embrace that overwhelms. And what Paul is putting on display in these verses is the key to understanding it. Yet it's easy to get tripped up in the little details, right? Some of us are asking questions already as we read through some of these verses. What's what's the problem with the Gentiles and Jews and what does that matter for my life? 
Why was there this animosity between these people groups? Why did God give preferential treatment to Israel? I don't even understand. It's like 2,000 years ago. What does it have to do with me? Why did it have to be this way? Why did God even choose a group of people out of all of these other nations? God didn't choose Israel in order to exclude the rest of the nations. He chose Israel to be an instrument of salvation to the nations. And that's where we find the key. You see, Israel's mandate was never to exclude other people groups. From the beginning of scripture, we see that Israel's mission from God was to actually bless the nations. He chose them to be a group of people that would bless the people groups around them. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. He tells Abraham, out of which all the nations would come, all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Unless that Abraham would forget, he would tell him again in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham certainly will become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Unless people would forget, he would say again in chapter 22, through your descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And maybe if it fell on deaf ears, he would say again in chapter 26, through your descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And again in chapter 28, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your descendants, through Israel. We see this beginning to unfold as the Old Testament or the Torah begins to unfold. We see Solomon taking a hold of that missional mandate, building a temple where the presence of God would dwell. And he would pray. He would pray in 1 Kings chapter 8, in the future, God, foreigners who do not belong to your people Israel will hear about you. They will come from distant lands because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and powerful arm. And when they pray towards this temple, please hear from heaven where you live and grant them their request. Jeremiah in chapter 29, when the people of Israel were trapped in a foreign land in Babylon, he would say to them, oh, God will not bring you out of Babylon for 70 years. Instead, your mission is to stay there, eat the produce, shop where they shop, build families, build houses, bless the city in which you live, because in their welfare, you will find your own. Pray for the city in which you live. And the motivation for this people group, Israel, was the motivation of the gospel for us all. Why treat foreigners this way? Because you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and I rescued you. In Israel, just like people do, just like we do, forget the word of the Lord over time. Isaiah tells us in his opening chapter that at this point, after they have continue to forget the promises of God and the mission of God to the nations. God said to them through Israel, hey, you know what, stop. Just stop bringing your meaningless gifts. Stop offering the incense and going through the motions and offering the celebrations, the new moon, the Sabbath, the special day of fasting. All of these are sinful and false the way that you're doing them. What I wanted you to do was to do good, to seek justice, to help the oppressed, to defend the cause of the orphans, to fight for the rights of the widows. I wanted you to be my missional ambassador to the people that never knew me. Now, before we blame Israel, 
Don't forget that God didn't choose them because of anything meritorious about themselves. We wouldn't have fared much better, would we? (laughs) In fact, he does call us to be on mission, and how many times have we failed? Israel forgets over time. And it didn't help that come first century, as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, and as Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel, and as the gospel is going out in what we would call the New Testament, that Israel right now is occupied by a nation of Gentiles. Rome steps in with their mighty iron fist. There's no Messiah in sight, and they're struggling with a sense of identity. And the only thing they had left, they didn't have their civil rights, they didn't have their laws, they didn't have, any, they didn't have sovereignty over their own nation. The only thing that Rome left them was their religious background. And far be it from them to share it with the Romans. And so they did what people do from time to time. They cling to the one thing they have left. And that was their, their religious privilege. And in the process, they pushed away the other nations. They pushed away the Gentiles. And the Gentiles feel the same way that most of us feel when people push us away, right? Alienated. Doesn't help that Paul would go on to describe Gentiles in chapter 2 as dead, without hope, outsiders excluded. Far from being citizens of the nation of Israel, they are on the outskirts. Now imagine for a moment the plight of a Gentile who hears about God, just like Solomon would, would declare in 1 Kings. Hears about the God of Israel and wants to worship. Imagine the things that they have to go through to get near this God and his people. Imagine their plight. They could only get so far. We're told that on the outer circle of the temple where people would come to pray and seek the Lord was called the great court of the Gentiles. You would approach the temple and you could either go to the left or go to the right. If you were a woman or a Jew, you would go to the right. But if you were a Gentile, you would go to the left. And on the left, you would run into the great court of the Gentiles, about a 750 square foot embankment that formed the lowest, most outer enclosure of the temple. Meaning, if you were not a Jew and you wanted to meet the Lord, you were in the nosebleeds, dude. You were on the farthest, most outer enclosure. Not only that, but this is where the money changers met. This is where the merchants were. This is where the, the, the bleeding uh, goats and the oxen and the sheep were, were trodden in and, 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 and herded in. This is where animals would have defecated on the, on the floor and this is where money changers would have made their noise. You wanted to worship, you were in the noise on the outer skirts in the nosebleeds. It was a regular farmer's market. That was the best and closest you ever got to God and God's community of people. The historian Josephus tells us that there were actually warning signs in this section of worship for the Gentiles. In 1871, a giant block of limestone, about 22 by 33 inches wide, was discovered with these words on it. It says, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. You can come this far, and that's it. Gentiles were simply tolerated, they were not approved. You ever feel that way? Oh, I'm in the building, 
I'm being tolerated by my fellow man, but I am not approved by them. What is the typical human response to alienation? We tend to build these mechanisms by which we hope, out of desperation, to keep us safe from other people. Ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism means to evaluate other people and cultures according to the standards of your own. So in an ironic twist, the way that we protect ourselves from alienation is to alienate everybody else. We form tribes and clubs and cliques and groups of other safe people. Those who have not yet hurt us. Those who have not yet betrayed us. Those who don't seem like they would hurt us ever. Now the problem with this is our desire to protect ourselves this way. Our desire to preserve ourselves causes us to reject everybody else that doesn't fit into our safe mold. We end up hurting others, perpetuating our own cycle, the very things that we were afraid of to begin with. We protect ourselves from alienation by alienating everybody else. I grew up in the small town of Watsonville, which is about four hours north of of Santa Barbara, Carpinteria and Ventura, just south of Santa Cruz. And my grandpa was the first one, and my grandmother was the first uh, one of our family to come into that particular town. And you know, my grandpa, my grandpa was a, a Filipino, full-blooded, cultural, language, joy, noise, dancing, all such things. You knew you were in a Filipino household simply by walking in the front door. making your way over the bubbled plastic that covered the carpets. (laughs) As you went into the kitchen, you were bombarded by a plethora of aroma. Fried rice and white rice and diniguan and ponset and pork adobo and all sorts of things that you couldn't pronounce but you loved to eat. (laughs) And over all of that food was this wonderful grandmother or aunt that seemed to snap her fingers and stuff would just spring out of the cupboards. (laughs) Other stuff sprung out of nothing at the snap of the finger. Karaoke was one of them. (laughs) And East Coast Swing. We love to dance. In the 1930s, At least in Watsonville, Filipino men often danced with white women because, well, there weren't many Filipino women to dance with and we didn't see the difference. That was a problem in the 30s. That was a problem. My grandfather remembers a time in January when Watsonville residents, sick of this type of intermingling between people groups, started to riot Watsonville in the streets that I I grew up in decades later. A mob of 200 citizens roamed the streets where I grew up hunting people just like me. Following day, the dance hall that the Filipinos had built to dance with each other was raided and 500 Watsonvillians roamed the streets destroying the neighborhood, pulling Filipinos out of the dance hall, beating them in the very streets that I lived, one man was shot in the back as he tried to escape the violence. 
alienation. Now that's just my story. Many of you have your own. Out of that came far more hostility and alienation in the form of signs on restaurants, don't come in, don't use our bathrooms, don't date our girls, don't mingle on our side of town. All of this, of course, was exacerbated when Pearl Harbor was attacked, when my grandmother, who was a full-blown Eskimo, was herded into a confinement camp with hundreds of other innocent Japanese Americans. And that type of treatment does something to you. You know this. That type of alienation and hostility does something that just does not go away. And it started with shock, and it ended with alienation, and it evolved into resentment, and it turned into bitterness. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you're bitter. Last year in December, the Santa Cruz Sentinel ran an article where an assemblyman formally apologized to Filipino Americans in California on behalf of the state. And the third generation of us, my sister and myself, were excited because we didn't go through that stuff. My sister put it up on our Facebook wall. I picked up my phone. I called my dad and I was like, dude, that's so sick, right? The whole world is a better place. Yeah! I never went through that stuff. I thought the whole world was getting along. Go team. <laughs> My dad's response was somewhat bittersweet. He said, yeah, it was nice. I mean, it didn't stop, you know, it didn't fix the problem. It didn't erase the emotional scars, but it was a start. It didn't fix anything. However, it triggered something that is deep-seated within us. One, it triggers this hope that perhaps the enmity between people can somehow stop. And yet it's a longing for something far deeper than that. Have you noticed that stopping bad things still leaves something good to be desired? We want more than just for the bad stuff to stop. We want good stuff to actually happen in its place. I just got done watching this documentary called Knuckles of these Irish immigrants, nomads, and travelers that would settle their disputes with one another in fist, uh, bare-knuckle fist-style boxing. One person from this family would say something to offend someone from this family, and they would train for a year to box one another in a backyard setting with judges and scorekeepers and galleries watching them. And a funny thing would happen. One of them would win. And that person would feel vindicated as a result of it. And what would he do after that? He would begin to taunt the loser. And so there was justice, supposedly, put on display. And yet, this trauma, this, this taunting that would cause this perpetuation of all the bad stuff that was deep-seated in their hearts. And the same thing would happen over and over and over again. Because we don't just want bad stuff to be dealt with. We want good stuff to replace it. It's not enough to deal with the enmity between us. We want deep-seated relationship to happen. We want something to be done with our ethnocentrism. We need more than just justice. We need reconciliation. And what Paul is declaring in Ephesians chapter 2 is that deep-seated desire that we have is met only 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says in verse 14, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united both Jew and Gentile into one people group. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So it wasn't just that Jesus fixed the problem. It wasn't just that he bare-knuckled the wall of hostility. Nor did he just simply apologize to the people who were victimized. But he reconciled the groups. says in verse 17, he brought the good news to us. He brought the good news, the gospel of peace to Gentiles who are far away, but also peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father. We have access through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And then look at this in verse 19. Now you Gentiles, you who used to be known as dead, you used to be known as slaves, you used to be known as outsiders and outcasts and on the outskirts, you who used to congregate in the court of the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers or foreigners. You are citizens. Christ brings us not simply to just tolerate and put up with one another, but to be reconciled with one another as fellow human imagers of the living God. Now, he doesn't do this by wiping out your identity. It's not like he takes Gentiles and he turns them into Jews, or he takes Jews and turns them into Gentiles. He doesn't take Filipino people and turn them into white people, and he doesn't take white people and turn them into Asians, or Yugoslavians, or Italians, He doesn't cause us to change our culture. He doesn't call us to change our identity or even our tribes. But he takes all of those people group, all of those tribes, and he incorporates them into one new spiritual class of people. Calls it the church. A beacon of light to nations who've been traumatized by violence, aggression, hostility, and animosity. And he says to them, together, verse 20, we are his house. So when we speak of a house, when we speak of a church, we are not just speaking about four walls. Paul and Jesus never had that in mind. Some of you say, wow, you guys have a nice church here. No, we don't. We have a nice gym. (laughs) You are a nice church. Those of you in Carpinteria, you are a part of our nice church. Ventura, you are a nice church. We are a nice group of people who call on the name of the Lord. Imagine the scene at the first church gathering in Ephesus or Antioch or Jerusalem. You'd stroll in and you'd walk and you'd see over to the right, oh, Nicodemus, the, the leader of all of Israel's religion. What's he do? He's sitting right there next to a Roman centurion. Why are they laughing? Turn over and you look to the left and you see Onesimus, a former slave, handing the bulletin to his former slave owner, Philemon, who is discussing with them what they're going to eat for lunch together. As you make your way down the corridor, you see To your right, a well-respected rabbi male discussing theology with Lydia. And if you don't know what's going on in the first century, you have walked 
into a circus that you cannot explain by any of your former structures or programs. You look at the church in the first century and you marvel at what you are seeing. The gospel brings supernatural reconciliation to relationships that are broken. And look around. Thousands of years later, situated on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, people still marvel. Look at us. At all three campuses in this one church, look around the building. There are people in this building that you would never go to Trader Joe's with. There are people in this building that in the parking lot of Trader Joe's you are just, you are just disgusted by. People that you would never get along with. People that you would never have a heart-to-heart conversation with. People that you have nothing in common. In fact, in a room this size, in a room this size, you are bound to be able to find someone who is your natural-born enemy. Someone of a different race. Some of a, someone of a different political class. Someone of a different socioeconomic class. There are rich people. There are poor people. There are people with great homes. There are homeless people. There are Democrats. There are Republicans. There are Calvinists. There are Arminiasts. There are people from all different types of spheres meeting in this room. You would never have a conversation with them. And yet somehow you are sitting in the same building because you have gathered together under a common bond that goes much deeper than your differences. And you share that bond with great joy and this was God's intention from the beginning of Genesis no wonder Paul trips out and says when I think of this I Paul a prisoner a Christ Jesus in verse 1 for the benefit of Eugenia goes into a tangent forgets his train of thought and then comes back to it in verse 14 says oh yeah when I think of all of this I fall to my knees and pray to the father wow I can't believe this is actually happening. Now, what Israel and what we have been failing to do, Christ did. And he forms a church out of it to brag about his glorious grace. Now, it's not like we're perfect. Some of you probably still cut people off in the, car, in the parking lots on your way to church. Perhaps you didn't intend to and mean to, but you're now sitting in the row behind them awkwardly trying to worship, (laughs) hoping that they don't see or recognize you. And that's the body of Christ, man. Real family is messy. Real community is messy. And so we don't need to romanticize the church and think of us as something that we are not. We're, We're jacked up individuals. But we're on a trajectory by the power of the gospel. And we can at least say, wow, I'm kind of mean right now, but I'm not nearly as mean as I was last year. We're not perfect, but we know that we have the hope of continual restoration as we drink deeply of the gospel. And how does the gospel heal? Tyrants and hoodlums like us. The gospel embraces those of us who feel alienated by others. And yet, at the same time, it humbles those who feel ethnocentric towards others. And it brings the two together in one fell swoop. So that what was first heard by ethnocentric Peter the Apostle 
can now be heard by all of us when God said, what God has made clean, don't you dare call dirty. I have made you clean. Sinner, you are a saint. You have been made clean by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel declares in one smooth sentence that God embraces the unlovely. How many of you feel unlovely? For some of us, the unlovely aren't people who you feel indifferent to, people that you don't have anything in common. The unlovely are those who have hurt you dramatically. In the mid-90s, another race-induced conflict was exploding Croatia and Serbia, the Croatian War, out of which came a young theologian named Miroslav Volf, who was trying to figure out how theology addressed pain that went really deep. He wrote an award-winning book called Exclusion and Embrace, and in the first opening pages, he wrote his, his struggle. He said, after I finished my lecture, Professor Jurgen Moltmann stood up and asked one of his typical questions, both concrete and penetrating. Miroslav, can you embrace a Chetnik? It was the winter of 1993. For months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called Chetnik had been sowing desolation in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying our cities. I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. But can I embrace a Chetnik? The ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other. What would justify the embrace? Where would I draw the strength for it? What would it do to my identity as a human being and as a croat? took me a while to answer, though I immediately knew what I wanted to say. No, I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. Some of you in this room are asking that same exact question right now. You see, you're not just feeling alienated by people in this building or in the state of California or in your family or in your spheres of influence or in your workplace because you feel indifferent to them, but because they have hurt you. They have betrayed you. Maybe they've even abused you. And you can handle the knuckles. You can handle maybe the clever apology. You can handle justice and maybe even vengeance. But reconciliation is hard for you to accept because justice requires one side of the party to change. Justice means you change. Reconciliation requires both of us somehow to change. And that's a hard thing for some of us to get our minds around because the truth of the matter is if we're honest with ourselves, we didn't do anything wrong. I'm the victim. You are the one who is victimized. And that's probably true. But why every human being on the face of the earth needs reconciliation is because even if you are the victim, your heart will chew on your own victimization and your own pain and the way that you were wrong until at least in your mind that other person gets what's coming towards them. 
And if they don't get it in this life, they'll get it in the confines of your mind as you replay that pain and that hostility over and over and over and over again. God promises that he will bring us justice, that we don't need to take it into our own hands. And for some of us, that's not enough. We want to do it ourselves, even if that means stiff-arming that person for the rest of our lives. Paul tells us, that person who has wronged you has to be released from your prison, just as you must be healed from theirs. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to go back to that place where you were hurt. It doesn't mean that you need to go back to that place where you were abused, where you were betrayed. It doesn't mean that you need to be walked over in the name of the gospel. Because remember, Jesus is a champion for the oppressed. He's the one that sets us free from oppression. What it does mean is that he doesn't just free you from your oppression, from their oppression. It means he frees you from your own oppression. That sickness that turns to resentment and that resentment that turns to bitterness and that bitterness that haunts your dreams. Truth of the matter is, we don't need just justice, we need redemption. And so there might be a couple different people in this room. One is saying, you know what, I just don't really like that particular group of people, I'm indifferent to them. They didn't do anything wrong, they're just so unlike me, I don't even like them. Can't we just have a church where I can go and customize my own friends? Facebook, where I can mute the people that I want to mute and choose the people that I want to be around. And then there's another group of people in here who's like, man, I'm not indifferent to them. I hate them. They've hurt me. They've damaged me. Can there really be reconciliation when I've been betrayed so bad? Can't we have a church where people just get along and don't hurt each other? And to both of you, Paul would say, that church does not exist. church is messy. Go figure. It's filled with sinners. And we have to understand that the gospel is bad news before it gets good. The bad news is that we are all unlovely to somebody else. Most of all, God in our sin. The good news is God through Christ embraces the unlovely. And then he goes and he teaches hoodlums and ruffians and tyrants how to experience that same freedom that he knows with each other. So that when the world stops by the church, and I don't mean the church with the four walls, I mean the gathered community of believers in the place where you live, in your community, on on your block, in the place where you work, in the places where you play, the recreation room, so to speak. Outsiders would look in at us and see our relationships. They would see natural-born enemies somehow able to find a common bond. They would step back and they would marvel and say, I've been looking for that my entire life. It means that our common bond is that God, by his great mercy, embraced the unlovely us so that we might be able to embrace those are unlovely to us and in doing so we perpetuate the gospel 
before we ever get to that point with each other, we've got to be healed from our own garbage. And in a room this size, in towns like Santa Barbara, small towns like Carpinteria, and wounded towns like Ventura, there is bound to be a lot of baggage in this room. And that's okay. Be honest with your baggage. You don't got to go through these doors and pretend like you're something you're not. You don't got to pretend like you're this three-piece suit-wearing religious professional Christian. Come in with your baggage and dump it at the foot of the cross and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to heal you of your wounds so that you would be healed and saved and redeemed from carrying them around for the rest of your life. It's got to heal our identities first. We've got new ones. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a brother and a sister to each other in a family that Christ single-handedly put together by his traumatic grace. Some of you are struggling with that. I just want to invite you to hit the carpets this morning. Repent of the things that you have been carrying. Repent of the things that you have been holding against other people. Just let God do the rest. I don't know if you know this or not, but he's waiting on high. Think of God in all of his glory and power on tiptoes, waiting for you to repent. That's our God. And he's your new father. Christ We, like Israel, have failed you and each other time and time and time again. In the process of that, we have built up so much baggage, so much hostility and animosity, whether it's as great as races and people groups fighting against one another or whether it's as small as people just not wanting to be next to each other, we have done you wrong. Thank you that God, regardless of the way that we have done you wrong, you've done us right. Thank you that on the cross, Christ, you did what we could not do. You took our place as the victim. Saying, I will suffer the very things that you have suffered. I will be able to empathize with your weaknesses. And you didn't just take our place as victim, but you took our, our places as the oppressors and you would say, don't, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. I will take the wrath that they deserved. Conquered the sin that so easily entangles us. And I pray that this morning, Lord, we would know the freedom that you so freely give. Only you can cause us to love each other and you can only do that by causing us to love you. Pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, there's communion at the front as well. If you want to remember the good news that saves people. God broke his body on your behalf. He spilt his blood to wash away your sins. That he took your place as the victim. That you don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with what you have gone through. And yet those of you who have done other people wrong, he also sympathizes with you because he took your place on the cross. 
There's prayer teams to the left and to the right. Perhaps you can't muster up the words to forgive one another. Perhaps you can't even put into words what you're trying to get out to your holy God. We want to serve you in that way by praying on your behalf. But whatever you do, stay in this place. God is after you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to love on you. And he wants to lavish you with a grace that we have never deserved in our entire lives. I suggest that we jump in with all that we have. Just jump in. In Jesus' name. Amen.